Hey, everyone. We are seven weeks away from our celebratory 200th episode, and we want to hear from all of you. Please send us a recording of a comment, a question, a suggestion to our email address at the two cities podcast at gmail.com. And if you do send us something, we will enter you into a raffle for free books. We're having a book giveaway because we so appreciate hearing from all of you. All right. And here's the episode. Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 193. In this episode, we're talking about Artemis of the Ephesians with Dr. Sandra Glan. Dr. Sandra Glan is professor of media arts and worship at Dallas Theological Seminary and the author of the book that we're excited to discuss in this episode, Nobody's Mother, Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity and the New Testament, published by IVP. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Josh Carroll and me, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So this conversation with Dr. Glan was so much fun. I love Artemis personally. She's always been one of my favorite Greco-Roman deities. And I learned a lot in this conversation. And I think I think it's fascinating how some of the paradigms about how we've talked about Artemis in particular uh, as being like a mother deity, a fertility deity have been really kind of upended in recent years. And this is what Dr. Glan is talking about. And this is what Dr. Glan's book is, is really kind of pointing towards is that if we reimagine this sort of the, the nature of Artemis and, and then look at first Timothy um, there's some, there's some nuances that come out and some things that tie together more, more neatly and clearly. Uh, and I just really appreciate uh, uh, this conversation. There's a lot of clarity about what Paul's doing in first Timothy. Uh, and also um, it's just uh, some interesting insights about uh, Artemis and the cult about Artemis in uh, Ephesus. Josh, what were some of the thoughts and takeaways that you had about our conversation with Dr. Glan? I love the fact that Dr. Glan has a huge heart for the church too. And, and she's an academic, she's loves the backgrounds. Um, she's delved into some new findings in archeology span and interpretation of inscriptions. And she's bringing that all to bear in, and looking at some really difficult passages um, in the new Testament, especially this, this passage in first Timothy. And so it's neat to hear somebody that is thoughtful, but at the same time, a thoughtful scholar, but at the same time, it has a direction and a heart for the church um, that there's practical applications. There's implications that lift, especially women, to a place of um, a place where they have input and insight. And, and it's powerful what they can bring to a church body uh, that that we've for many centuries probably pushed down. So I'm excited for what this book will open up, these conversations that will open up. And uh, and just the fact that Dr. Glan is such a thoughtful person, and this is there's this is a lot of things to come from her, and uh, and it just excites me to think about what's happening with that. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at twocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Sandra Glan. Well, Dr. Glan, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. 
So we're really excited to talk about your new book, Nobody's Mother. How about we begin by hearing a little bit about the thesis of the book? What are you trying to argue about Artemis uh, in particular? Yeah, great question. My thesis is that Artemis is nobody's mother, <laughs> hence the title. Um, and what I'm looking at is the enigmatic uh, line in 1 Timothy 2 that says she will be saved through childbearing. And what in the world does that mean? We know it doesn't mean she'll be saved eternally. That completely contradicts Paul's soteriology everywhere else that he teaches. And we know Paul's a smart man and good at rhetoric. So that raises all kinds of questions about what does it mean? And I was taught in a couple of places that it meant that a woman's outlet is 100% in the nuclear family and with children. So when my husband and I hit 10 years of infertility and pregnancy loss, it causes a spiritual crisis because, you know, there wasn't room for me, I thought, in the church. Uh, And so it started me on a journey of scholarship to answer the question, where did we get this wrong? What does it really mean? Wow. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And of course, you know, the issue too with that passage is who is the she as well, right? There's right. a lot, there's a lot yeah. to get in uh yeah. into that there. So uh look forward to uh that that discussion. But uh could you tell us more about who Artemis is uh in particular? Um the 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 cult surrounding her, yeah. even the kind of diversity of expression that we find uh, about uh, this this deity. Yeah, I'd love to. So you're like, why are we asking about Artemis when we're looking at First Timothy? And the first hint comes in First Timothy one three, where Paul says to his protege, and it's a it's a private letter. It doesn't mean it's not for the church, but still, it's not a church letter. It's a individual letter, and he says, I left you in Ephesus to teach certain people, not to teach false doctrine. And that certain people could include women. It's not, doesn't necessarily have to be males. Um, and talks later in, you know, in talking to Timothy about women going house to house. Again, we might picture living room to living room, but except that that's a very common phrase in the Bible, for, or New Testament, right, for the church. So that kind of raises eyebrows. And then you slide over, okay, we know Timothy's in Ephesus. We know Paul is concerned about false teaching. So that raises the question, what's the false teaching? The book of Acts gives us a major clue or two. Acts 17 has two major stories, which honestly, I didn't realize till the last couple of years were related. I thought they were two separate uh, theologies at work. The first is the magicians that are coming to Christ and in such massive numbers that they have the first bonfire of the vanities and they throw all their expensive magic books uh, on a big bonfire and burn them because magic was illegal uh, at the time but Ephesus kind of got a pass so it is magic central in the empire and has a very strong hold so that's the first thing but then the second story that comes right after that is raised by the Artemis silver workers well her temple is one of the seven wonders of the world. In fact, it's the crown jewel uh, of the seven wonders. And people come from all over the empire to see it, to uh, the richest people deposit stuff there because it's the only guarded bank in the empire <laughs> or the only one that we know of, you know, so you're worried about theft all the time. And so people make pilgrimages to Artemis is like the number two person in the, in the uh, pantheon, Zeus being the greatest. 
And so you have the silver workers a little bit ticked because Paul's gospel ministry is so renowned and having such success that it's cutting into their economy because people aren't buying as many souvenirs of silver Artemis's. And you have a little disturbance that leads to them rushing into the theater that's still there. And for two hours, they're chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And shortly after this, Paul's like, time for me to go to Macedonia. I was already headed there, but I'm out of here. And the next day he's gone. So what would be on Paul's mind as he's leaving? It would be the Artemis cult. And now I know that the two are related because I've found inscriptions that had incantations to Artemis that had Artemis connected with magic. And then if you think about Ephesians 6, written to the whole church in Ephesus, and maybe also Laodicea, uh, Artemis is depicted like Wonder Woman with a bow, and he's got the fiery, we sometimes translate darts, but the fiery, you know, arrows. <laughs> uh it would be a little bit like saying kryptonite to a Superman fan. Like you don't have to say her name for somebody in Ephesus to know who is shooting arrows. And Paul is taking down the dark arts and saying, here's how you armor up against it. You have more power than they do. All that to say, uh, I was looking at who is Artemis at the time of Paul and was she on Paul's mind? Did I find all kinds of words that related to Artemis in the letter to 1 Timothy? And yes, I did. The, the big deal is that for so long, if you just Google Artemis, uh, a lot of people are going to say she's a fertility goddess. She was nothing of the sort in Ephesus at the time of Paul. She was the exact opposite, which is hence my book title, Nobody's Mother. She was not only not a mother goddess, she was a confirmed virgin. She was not necessarily like pro women in that she was as likely to shoot women with her arrows as men. Uh, she, you know, she didn't discriminate on that. Um, but she was also incredibly uh, intensely guarding of her virginity to the point where there's one story in the mythology where a man accidentally stumbles on her bathing and like she takes him out. Doesn't matter if he's innocent because, you know, she is just really intense about this. And Ephesus is traditionally the birthplace. It's the natal city of Artemis. And there's some trauma related to Ephesus because her mother writhed for nine days before she gave birth to Apollo. And this appears to be in Homer. The, the reason that Artemis is like confirmed virgin, doesn't want to do sex, doesn't want to do pregnancy, doesn't want to do mothering. Let me just have my wild animals and my arrows. So you see two different kinds of statuary for her. You'll see the short skirted maiden with, you know, the bow and arrow, but you will also see the uniquely Ephesian version, which looks like it has these bulbous appendages all over her. And that's, the origin of the idea that she's a mother goddess because they look like breasts. And particularly in the West, we think if there's a breast, it's got to be mothering and nurturing. But they are lacking in essential detail. <laughs> but also, there are a couple of the statues where you can see that her skin is ebony, her face is ebony, her hands ebony, her feet ebony, but the rest of her is some kind of breastplate. It's something she puts on. So it's not a body part. And uh, just in the last you know, decade or so, there's been a big connection between um, the Hittite background. We've tended to think of Artemis as European, 
and look for European explanations. But probably what it, those bulbous appendages are probably uh, Hittite magic sacks. And then you go, oh, magic. There's the connection again. You know, with the new uh, evidence that you're finding with inscriptions, this is a real entrenched passage in kind of church ministry and understanding of eldership and leadership and all that kind of different thing. Um, I love that you're you're stepping in with the with the new stuff. Like, what's that like to look at a passage and look how entrenched it is, and then have the personal experience that you had that kind of drives you to think about this in a different way, and even to say, I'm going to write a book that is going to question some of the ways that people have translated this over. Yeah. over the time and the entrenched kind of understanding and hermeneutic that it's used as? That is a really great question. You know, I, as I was sitting in Greek class in seminary, um, I had Daniel B. Wallace, who's just incredible with Greek. And one of the things that he said that really resonated with me, uh, I was in Greek while I was wrestling with these questions. Uh, who am I? What was I made for? I value motherhood. I value, I'm fine with male leadership. Like that. I don't want to be a seminary professor. At one point, I didn't think women were supposed to go to seminary. How's that for irony? Um, but Dr. Wallace said, if Jesus is the truth, we should not be afraid to follow the truth where it leads. And uh, that was one of those moments where your heart beats fast. Like when you're supposed to give a testimony, and <laughs> you don't want to stand up. It's like, but it can cost you it, it can cost you big time to, you know, have, yeah, explore some of those things. What's interesting, though, I think is that people often assume that it was the backgrounds that drove me to this. And it was really the book of Acts that drove me to the backgrounds. But it all confirms, I mean, every all the confirmation has been in the New Testament. In fact, um, when I was doing a lot of the historical research, I was doing it at the University of Texas at Dallas. And ironically, I came out more convinced of Pauline authorship. It's sometimes questioned in the pastorals, but the reason a lot of them question it is because Paul's vocabulary is very different in his letters to Timothy and Titus. And I'm finding Artemis vocabulary all over this place. And I'm thinking, well, that explains the difference in vocabulary because he is talking about a very specific false doctrine that he wants Timothy to take down. Uh, I found the name um, Soteria, uh, I don't know, 20 or 30 times reference to Artemis. And normally when Paul starts a letter, he says, grace and peace to you, right? But in First Timothy and in Titus, you see him greeting with a reference to the savior. And again, people go, well, Paul, that's a that's a rare word. Actually, we don't see Savior that much uh, in Paul, certainly not in, in his greetings. And it's like, yeah, but if you're seeing all these inscriptions to the Savior of the city, then now Paul's kind of casting shade is what he's doing. So uh, when you were describing the magical uh, connections to to Artemis, um, uh, I, I, I get really excited because uh, one of um, Josh and I's former uh, professors uh, at Talbot is Clinton Arnold, who's written oh, a, lo a lot. You on... lucky dog! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, yeah, and you know he's 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 written a lot on magic yeah. and power in yes. in Ephesians, and, and he's brilliant so, on this. Yeah, and I quote I, him a lot. Right, right, and I I uh, completely agree about the dynamics of magic and power and how it relates to uh, interpreting Ephesians. Um, 
I, I am really interested about the idea that the protrusions are magic sacks. I, I, I have not heard that. Um, the Hittite background mm-hmm. is interesting. I've, yeah. I've also thought about just the broader Anatolian, um, you know, going back to the, the, the mother fertility side of it, you know, kind of Kubele and the kind of mountain mother uh, goddesses. So I'm curious about about what's going on there because i i've i've sort of been under the impression and haven't you know been studying artemis and looking at these inscriptions like you have so i'm really curious to hear hear more um but i but i had sort of been under the impression that kind of the anatolian you know fertility stuff uh just sort of co-opted the you know um the 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 virgin huntress uh imagery that you that you were talking about so i'd love to hear more about that um well it's entirely possible that we do have a conflation in the seventh century and bc and after that but what our concern as new testament scholars is is who was she at the time of paul so even if the two were conflated what I had to do to figure that out was, let me back up. When I go to Ephesus, I see the beautiful library, as you've probably seen too. And it's what usually appears on the brochures, even for New Testament scholars that are going. So I get there and people are like, oh yeah, that wasn't there for another hundred years after Paul. So then I'm like, wait, I have to know what was here when Paul was here. All of the rest is interesting history, but it is not relevant to me as a New Testament interpreter. So then the next question as a historian is, how do I figure out what, you know, is is unique to Paul's day? So what I had to do was first I studied the backstory and I found out who is Artemis in antiquity. But then I fast forwarded to within 100 years, 100 BC to 100 AD and limited myself to, I want to read everything I can that's written that I can find. I want to read all the inscriptions that are dated to that time to find out, regardless of how it got here, what did the person in the time of the earliest Christians think she was? And that was what was so interesting was really, she started out as a virgin goddess, um, you know, because of her trauma watching her, her mother birth Apollo. And even in antiquity, she was a virgin goddess. It's, it's the local goddess in Ephesus that was maybe a mother goddess. But what you don't see uh, in, in what I found was references to anything having to do with motherhood, nurturing. Um, in fact, she is quite volatile and she is not like favoring women, right? <laughs> um, but, and also, not only is she not just for women um, and not not like for women against men there. So there wasn't like a feminazi, if, if you will, uh, mentality, which is sometimes taught. I didn't see any of that. You see the person Artemis or M.E.S. Uh, referenced in Titus that Paul refers to. So his parents named him after the goddess, meaning follower of Artemis. I saw as many men as women. If you think about the silver workers, they're men. So it's not that it was a female cult in the same way. I use the analogy that in the same way, you'll see men and women uh, adoring the Virgin Mary. You see men and women adoring Artemis and, and being afraid of her and being taken out by her. She's as likely to kill women as men. And so what, what I did was limit my inscriptions, my papyri, my coins, my statuary, just to within a hundred years on either side of Paul, uh, give or take a, a decade here and there sometimes, but there was nothing, nothing that mentioned mothering, nurturing, 
In fact, it was quite the opposite. And I think it helps us understand why there would be these so many single women referenced in First Timothy. You've got young widows, old widows, real widows. They didn't have a word for a single gal that had either never married or was uh, divorced. Uh, so I think we could actually, instead of translating it, widows indeed could be real widows, as opposed to people were calling widows because they're without a man, woman. Uh, so why have you got all these single women? And why is Paul saying, I want the young widows to marry when he sells in, in Corinth? He's like, I want you to think about celibacy here. That is not what he's saying in Ephesus. They're already thinking about celibacy, apparently. And it makes sense there. You know, we tend to be like what we worship. So long, long story short, I didn't see any evidence of a mother in cult at the time of the early Christians. That's not to say that there wasn't one at one time. Uh, it's why if you go to Ephesus, you're going to get a synoptic Artemis. You're going to get the Artemis of, you know, seven to nine centuries. But again, for the New Testament scholar, our particular interest is really who was she specifically at the time of the earliest Christians? Hmm. That point about uh, single women, I think, is a really good one. I appreciate you uh, bringing that up. So just to clarify the relevance of like Artemis statuary for for New Testament period, um, the 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 kind of image that comes to mind of the port protrusions the yeah. the symbols of the zodiac kind of wrapping yes. around uh yeah. her neck like a necklace the kind of demon figures that line her legs um uh is this the kind of standard image that you think paul would be familiar with paul is totally familiar with this image but also it's not the only statuary of artemis they have both i like to say artemis in ephesus is like barbie in that she can be both the president and an architect, and she might have different paraphernalia. So they would still recognize this as Artemis Diana uh, from the Roman side, but then the, specifically Artemis of the Ephesians, the, the one with the bulbous appendages, whatever you want to you know, attribute them to, are, are unique to Ephesus. But that doesn't mean she's the only depiction of Artemis in Ephesus, if that makes sense. You've got both. So that's interesting because uh, I love I love the even having to cut through the cultural evolution, basically of how people viewed Artemis and things like that. And I even think about today, because when you think about Artemis, the Artemis archetype is kind of all throughout our culture too. Like yes. think about hunger games, it's in Artemis is in mm -hmm. video games, Artemis yeah. is the feminist example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it has all of these things. So how do you, do you navigate that as you're thinking through like how to- how Oh, to I do. And I have opinions. <laughs> I'll bet, that's I'll bet, because you kind of have to correct a lot of things, right? In yeah. a way that says, yeah. let's cut through this stuff. Let's cut through the middle yeah. stuff. Let's get yeah. back to yeah. So somebody who is intending to be kind to me gave me a statuary of Artemis of the Ephesians. I'm like, no, no, I hate her. Like <laughs> Paul's message is she is your enemy. Jesus is better. So, but, uh, but she's also... Like Wonder Woman evolved from Diana Artemis, but not Artemis of the Ephesians. Um, she is, and she has emerged in the West, of course, as being super pro women. Uh, so, you know, because she had her birth, uh, you know, in the last couple of, in the last century, right? Uh, so it's based on her, but very loosely. Uh, she's single. 
but again, Artemis of the Ephesians isn't like girl power as much as just power. <laughs> and she's not pro-woman like Wonder Woman is. She is pro-Artemis. <laughs> and you get in her way, you know. But also, here, here is what I think is a concern to Paul. The number one cause of death in his world for women is childbirth. Number one cause of death for men is war. For women, it's birth. If you know somebody who's had a C-section, if you know somebody who's had preeclampsia, who's had to be hospitalized, they're all dead. Like they're not surviving that. There's no alternative. So everybody not only has a friend, but probably a family member who has died in childbirth. So picture this, you're a new believer. And it used to be that you've taken your offering to Artemis and you've prayed two things, either deliver me safely, save me through childbearing or kill me quickly with your euthanizing arrows, but don't leave me writhing and then dying you know, after nine days. Um, don't leave me. You can imagine what a horrible way to die. It's not instant for the most part. Uh, and it, it would be terrifying. And I think Paul is recognizing that the number one fear for this woman in his new congregation is that, okay, here's where the rubber meets the road. If I am not going to take my offering to the one I used to, this better be true. And not only that, um, I need something to assuage my fear. And I think Paul is taking a phrase. She will, I think she will be saved through childbearing is a local phrase. And uh, it's actually in the singular. And then he adds as Christian spin, but they, which is not good grammar unless it's a quote. And Paul's good grammarian. So I think he's taking a local saying and he even the next line is this is a faithful saying. And we tend to put it with, this is a faithful saying, if somebody wants to be an elder, I think it's the end of his sentence. He's saying, she'll be saved if, which he does. He likes to put his Christian spin on a local saying, right? Uh, he borrows it and then Christianizes it. And I think he is saying to Timothy in the world where the number one power in the people's perception is the childbirth God. You're not going to have women dying in childbirth. I don't think it's for all time promise. I don't think that that negates that first Timothy is for all time. It's just that we have wrongly applied what is for all time. Paul's contextualization of the dark powers and that Jesus is better is for all time. So another one of our uh, professors at Talbot, Moyer Hubbard, um, argued something similar. And I'm wondering um, if there's uh, a distinction uh, here about the the faithful saying. So he, he argued you know, that uh, being saved through childbearing has to do with surviving uh, uh, childbearing and that it's a, yeah, a kind of proverbial type of statement that it's not always true, but proverbially. Um, and it's, it's a faithful saying in that way. Um, I believe it was published in Jets. Um, curious, is that similar to how you would understand this? Or It is and it isn't. Okay. We, we both see it as a local saying. Um, I don't see it as a proverbial saying in that I wouldn't teach that in my women's Bible study, it's likely that you're going to survive childbirth because you're a Christian. I don't think that gives you any kind of advantage uh, against any sort of health emergency. Uh, I think it gives you the advantage of Jesus is better, <laughs> you know, for all time. But uh, I, I think that Paul is concerned 
specifically with a false doctrine that he is trying to shut down in Ephesus. That's why he left Timothy there. He's got all these Artemis words there. Um, so, you know, there, there's some overlap in how we see that, but then that I wouldn't extend it at, uh, beyond that in terms of anything somebody could claim as a promise or even say is generally more true of Christians. Um, if anything, it seems like our promises that our life's going to be harder as a Christian than rather than easier. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned that there is this grammatical shift from third person singular to plural that she will be uh, saved. Yeah. Yeah, If they, so could you tell us a bit more about who is the, she, so, you know, there's, there's of course the view that this is really referring to Eve and that Jesus is the one that's sort of uh, being implied here. It's a little bit of the proto evangelium from like Genesis three 15 sort of thing. Could you you talk about the grammar and and how it relates to that view? I do think Paul is winking at us going, you know, Genesis. So I'm going to follow the Genesis outline because, but I don't think that he is making a promise to women about Eve. Um, I I have held every major view on this passage. I will tell you that because they're, they're all fraught. Uh, it, it's a challenge. I, I respect those who think uh, if you back up and, and notice there's a definite, article in she will be saved through the childbearing and that can just be translated saved through childbearing as a thing but it could also be a reference to christ as you said the proto-evangelion um the challenge with that is um it's saying that that you'll be saved through his birth or his incarnation which i certainly believe that we're saved through the incarnation but pauline emphasis sure seems a lot more on the death burial and resurrection for salvation and by grace through faith. Uh, so I, I'm not opposed to that interpretation, but it's, I don't think it makes the best use of all the grammar and all of this happening in the passage. But again, my concern is, is it um, an occasional letter and is it an, an occasional directive in terms of childbearing? I think that it is. On that point, given that you'd mentioned that there's this stress about single women and how that's quite uniquely uh, related to Artemis in particular, um, what about the arguments that really First uh, Timothy 2 is about husbands and wives, not not men and women, right. but right. husbands and wives. Could you talk about that in particular, especially since it does end with childbearing? Well, first of all, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked that because one of the reasons that tilt it toward husbands and wives rather than men and women is what kind of a woman is childbearing (laughs) in a Pauline world? It's going to be a wife. And not only that, his outline in the passage seems to match in many ways. uh, Peter's outline when he's talking about husbands and wives. Um, And what's interesting about that is there are some then who feel like perhaps it's an apostolic outline relating to husbands and wives. What what is worth pondering is so often we take the husband's section and think that's occasional, but the wife's section has to be for all time. And whatever we do with that needs to be absolutely consistent. And that's kind of the follow-up too, the, the pastoral implications of reading this in a church and kind of arranging the way that we think about eldership, the way that we think about leadership, the way that we think about women in general, 
Yeah. Yeah. I would love to comment on that. Yeah. Okay. You want me to go there? All right. Uh, it's it's not really, it, I go there in a footnote. It, the point of the research is really to solve for X on what does it mean through save through childbearing. In the process, um, one of the hats that I wear is I take students to do a course in Italy and we look at early church and medieval church art and we pretend that we can't read and we learn the visual literacy that the church would have had. And one of the things I love about it is you'll have like Melchizedek and Abel and an altar. I don't know the last time I heard sermons on them, but but so the literacy is pretty high, right? It's just maybe in a separate part of the Bible from what we might emphasize. And um I I think that elder is exclusive to men, but there is a parallel office, which is the mothers of the church, and those are the widows. When you look at the qualifications for elders, the one big stickling point is usually uh, the husband of one wife, but the widow has to have been the wife of one husband. And I don't know the last time your food pantry said, hey, we're not serving you unless you've been married to one husband. Like, you know, the the qualifications are really parallel. And then you back up and go, well, that makes sense. If Paul's metaphor for the church is a family, where are the moms, right? If you've got the elders and the deacons and either the wives of deacons or the deacons' wives, but where are the moms? Well, I think the moms are over in chapter five when he had too much to say to include them over in the section where he's talking about the elder responsibilities. And then you have to ask, did the early church see it that way? Well, where did we get nuns? We got nuns from widows. And here's what happens sometimes in history. We notice the deaconesses appearing and you know, female deacons. I know you know that that word deaconess didn't, you know, didn't even exist in the same way we don't have a teacher and a teaches uh, till later. But we don't see deaconesses till about the third century. And so our conclusion has been it was a later development. Well, now we're finding some graves that have you might have a little section by an old, old church that has widow of the church of, and you'll have a bunch of them together. And we didn't pay it any attention till people started noticing, no, 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 over there, it's widow of Joe, widow of John, widow of Jack. If it's a widow of a man, his name is on it. If it's a widow of the church, she's buried with other widows. And so now we're having to go back at all this data that we had that we didn't know what we were seeing because we weren't thinking of widow as an office. I found a fifth century ordination prayer for the office of widow. So it's, it's in the embryo stage, but I think my hypothesis here is the church has fathers and mothers, whatever you want to do with the authority structure, whatever you do with what that looked like, the reality is men and women were made to partner together. We image God together. This should not be a competition. We should be acknowledging each other's gifts. If you have a women's ministry and there's not a man involved in any way, there's something wrong with that. If you have a, a missions committee and there are not men and women involved, there's something wrong with that. As a side note, have you ever seen that practiced in the church before? Like uh, are trying to kind of instill. Yeah, actually, I think they're calling the women conversation partners. Um, they are invited to the elder meetings. I don't, I don't know that they're voting. But there's an acknowledgement that even saying we'll get input from our wives is not direct enough uh, to actually being in the conversation of men and women together. Well, I I know we've uh, danced around this, but I, I'd like to um, to ask uh, a little more directly. And I also know that, as you've said, you know, you're solving for X, right? What does this yeah. phrase mean? 
Um, but but if we take First Timothy two to have some direct sort of salience for husbands and wives, and if we recognize that there's this like office of widow, for example, or the moms of the church, as you say, yeah. would the author of First Timothy, right? Let's call him Paul. Give him give him a nice nickname. Let's call him Paul. Um, <laughs> would 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 Paul have have been okay with a, a widow teaching in the church, right? So First Timothy yeah. two is about husbands and wives, and if a widow does not have a husband, right, whether she was previously yeah. married married yeah. or not, yeah. um, would would Paul have been okay with that person teaching in the church? Well, it does seem that if if we take gune there to mean wife instead of a woman, we would be reading uh, not I am allowing uh, a wife uh, either to uh, teach or authentain. I take authentain to have the idea of autonomy. You can kind of hear it in the ought. Um, and and you're in a world where there's no such thing as contraception. So it's not like a woman who's a mom has a choice. Like she, she's either going to die in childbirth, given birth to her third child, or she's going to be very busy. Uh, you know, she doesn't have disposable diapers. She doesn't have like, it's either or. And even, even in the history of nuns up through the middle ages, a woman was not one or the other, I mean, was not both. And she couldn't have the life of the mind and also be a mother. Uh, it, and so when you empty the monasteries of women in the Protestant Reformation and overemphasize motherhood as the end all be all, then this, I think this is the origin of some of the pain for women of what I, I want the life of the mind. So I think that it, if you're going to translate it as wife, then you got to have the ramifications have to be husband and wife. So then when you look at Romans 16, which looks like how Paul is operating in the church, um, even, even in Philippians, when he talks about from the first day till now, well, uh, who was on the first day? <laughs> I was gathering a woman by the river. Um, so he doesn't speak fill it out but it it looks like what we have done as protestants is we have elevated motherhood to the exclusion of singles when the early church was doing the exact opposite um it was a problem singlehood was too awesome and again it's part of why you have the corrective in the reformation um but we swung it too far so this this book is seems to bridge the gap you have a lot of like the academic background, the academic knowledge you bring things into. And I know it's written with IVP. Um, what, what, where do you want this book to impact the church, academia, both? I mean, the bridge between what are, yeah. you're thinking? Well, I don't know if you've process. seen Shiny Happy People, but okay. that I went to the Bill Gothard seminar four times. That's where I got this idea that, that, so you can imagine a woman in that context. I mean, I was ready to have the Birkenstocks and the herb garden and lots of kids. And when you hit the brick wall of infertility, it is an absolutely deadly spiritual crisis. There is no place for you. 
And any place you might want to develop anything, whether it's a career, you know, you have you have to tell people you're infertile for them to believe that you're legitimately pursuing something else. So I recognize that's a small segment, but that is my heart for all the women in that movement. Uh, now they're starting to hit all the kids are grown. I had one last semester. All the kids are grown and I'm in my early 50s. And if the Lord Terry's, you know, Dr. P at Dallas Seminary was teaching until he was 95, I could have 40 years of teaching ahead of me. Uh, that's that's not a very good use of my gifts if I'm just vacuuming all day. Um, so it's for that woman. <laughs> it, it's for, yeah, that's really my heart is for the woman coming out of ultra traditionalism to say motherhood's great, but girlfriend, there is so much more in God's pattern book for you. But it's also for the pastor who is thinking that um, if if some male leadership is good, all male sh- leadership is better. And then running into, but I got all these people with time on their hands, ready to serve, ready to make hospital visits, ready to teach each other, ready, ready to disciple and get the D- Apostles Creed memorized in our congregation. We're bleeding young women. I have people I could deploy for that. The harvest is ready and the workers are few. I hope that that person will see there is more than one option in God's pattern book for women. Well, I feel like we could do a whole episode just on the Bill Gothard movement <laughs> oh, and all goodness. of this. I that is a a wild connection. Um, I I can't believe that Bill Gothard himself uh never had any children. You, I mean, I would just imagine that the, the leader of a quiverful movement would would himself have quite the full quiver. Uh, what do you make hmm. of that? It's disturbing that someone who was so uh, dogmatic in his teaching on marriage and raising children was not someone who had children. I'm not saying that a single person can't have a lot of wisdom to give married friends and parenting friends. I myself have benefited from that, but that's still not the same thing, (laughs) Uh, you know, uh, and, and then to find out he's pretty creepy. um, I think just hypocrisy uh, we've tolerated a lot of hypocrisy in the church and need to call it out in ourselves first and then call it out where we see it. I love how this administered to people because, you know, I've known a few people that have come from that movement and the disillusionment is so powerful that church, they leave the church, yes, that's right. leave the church and don't want to come back. Yeah. And and you want to you want to say no? That's not the that's Jesus not is the better. Is Jesus is yeah. better. <laughs> yes. Bottom line from all of this research, and that might be just even the like you're saying the people that are disillusioned leaving can see what's happening with your book and step into that, and it's the good corrective. I love how how, how to inform that, and I I want the women in my church to read and think through critically about these things too, in a way that says, how does God value you, your role, your leadership, your calling? in a way where we can celebrate it. Um, so that's exciting. I'm excited for this. I've been following your stuff uh, for a while, and and this seems like a really neat culmination of, of some awesome study that you've done, but also um, just some fine points that need to be made. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it.
Now, I'm curious as well. Um, I know you don't address uh, Ephesians 5 and the household codes, but yeah. is there anything that you would maybe want to say from the vantage point of having written this book uh, about uh, Ephesians 5? Yeah, actually, I'm glad that you asked that. So as I'm a writer and a, I've got a couple novels that I was doing really in, in my early professor years before I didn't have time to do that. Um, and I am a lover of wordcraft. And I think if there's one thing we really botch uh, in the hermeneutical camp where I live is metaphor. And when you look, if you trace the two shall become one, that is the teaching of the scripture from Genesis to the end. And I think what Paul is doing there is taking what we have seen as, if you will, a horizontal picture of two become one, and he's flipping it into a vertical picture and a head and body are still a united one. Uh, I do this creepy thing in a class I teach on that section where we take my self in an evening gown and put my husband in a beard on it and say, this is actually the weird metaphor that Paul had the two become one. He's the head, she's the body. And unfortunately we are so uncomfortable with metaphors that we like to replace them with synonyms. So Let's take one that's not as fraud as Ephesians. Let's take uh, Psalm 23. What if we said the Lord is my leader? I shall not want. Well, then we're, it's not going to make sense to like water and pasture. You, you lose it all. And I think something equally damaging happens when you replace the word head with the word leader. And then the verb to love with the verb to lead. And the whole point there is not the proper distribution of power. That was what Aristotle was doing in his household code. Paul is trying to pop the balloon of power and we're trying to stuff it back in. Paul is saying a Christian marriage is two people who are utterly united. They are so united, they're one. If he hurts his own body, he hurts himself. She is his body. She are her. He are her. They, they're one unit. And so uh, here's how that Here's how the rubber meets the road on that for seminary students. We'll have people come. Uh, I'll have a wife come into my office and say, my husband got a call to seminary, but I didn't want to come, but he was called. I'm like, well, you you two are one. <laughs> so you need to get on the same page. Um, he was wrong in not praying and fasting with you till you're both ready, but you're here. So like you pray and fast and get on program with him. But that doesn't mean that what he did was right. Um, here's a positive example. So my my brother-in-law and my sister, um, it was that was their story. He definitely felt God's call to seminary. And she's like, ah, no, definitely not. The kids, you know, it's a really bad time for us. And he's like, if I heard the Holy Spirit, then that means the Holy Spirit can change my wife's attitude. I'm not going to rip her out of here and just do it. So he prayed and waited. And sure enough, Holy Spirit got to work. <laughs> And when they were both on the same page, they came together and we're all in. And, you know, we wouldn't make restaurant reservations the way some people say, like, it's like, where would you like to go? No, where would you like to go? That ought to be our Christian fights. Not I'm the one in charge. Therefore, we're going to do what I want. And you're going to follow because, you, you know, you're my satellite. Um, but that's sometimes how it gets taught. Paul goes out of his way to take power out of the household codes. And he does it with his choice of leader words. Elder means old guy, right? Deacon means servant. We can't even say the word servant without 
tagging on a hyphen with leader. Like, no, that's actually not the word he's using. He wouldn't say Paul the servant leader of the church of whatever. He he used the words that were like lack dignity, uh, widow. Like that's the most vulnerable person in the world. Uh, these are the words Paul chooses for someone who's going to shepherd God's people. But we're trying to stuff the power back in them, and we do it in Ephesians five too. I love it. I love how Paul walks through the power codes, and even even how he's watched our household codes, and even he's in like, Titus, he's we're going to have a respectable Roman family. We'll follow his yeah. outline. We'll just. Yeah. Turn it upside you, down. All you really have to do is all hold the honor shame culture and then the household codes within that codes within the honor shame culture and then show what Paul's doing. And it just it's flipped on its head. It's really obvious. Just for so, him even to be addressing women, which Aristotle didn't do. Aristotle mm-hmm. only talks to the master, the paterfamilias, the husband, and Paul's like slaves, XYZ, wives, mm-hmm. XYZ. Just he dignifies them by even addressing them. Um, and also one, uh, sort of as a sidebar, one of my pieces of research, one of my exam fields, uh, at UTD was the history of ideas about gender. And I was of course, very interested in what was considered masculine and feminine in the early church or, you know, time of the earliest Christians. And one of the things that, uh, really stood out to me was it was, it was really bad to be a gladiator uh, because people were looking on your body and they could touch your body and you didn't have any say. It's part of what was horrible about being a slave. Uh, A citizen could say, you can't touch me, but a slave could not say that. And so for, for Paul to not pull out his man card in Philippi when they're beating him up, which was insulting his manhood, but to wait until the ultimate gospel advantage to go, Oh, by the way, I'm a citizen. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Let's just escort you out of town. But he could have pulled it on the beginning, but his primary identity was as a Christian. So he suffered, even though it was an insult to his manhood. Jesus is experiencing so much shame on the cross. He is being violently treated and he's being looked on in nudity. And interestingly enough, over in Hebrews, it doesn't say despising the pain which we tend to talk about how painful it would be, and it would, but he despised the shame, which was worse, because uh, you are in an honor-shame culture, and to be bloodied, to be touched, to be looked on, all of which he's volunteering to do for us, uh, Jesus is sacrificing his man card for us. So kind of a follow-up with that uh, feminist archetype that people use for Artemis in the culture today, how does that how does your work speak to that? Like we can see where you, we've talked about where your work has lifted um, women to, to the area where they're needing to be seen, needing to be heard and what it's happening in first Timothy. How does, how does it work now speaking to that feminist archetype? Well, first of all, I would not be looking now based on what I know about Artemis, I would not be looking for her as the friend to women. Okay, (laughs) That is maybe been read into her uh, wishful thinking. Um, But also, I am really careful how I use the word feminist because in my evangelical subculture, it is a really horrible thing and it's a man-hater thing. But in other subcultures where I I am, it just simply means you uh, are for, you're against sexism. Uh, So equal pay, equal rights. And so if they would hear me say I'm against feminism, they would hear me to say, I don't think women should get the same, right? So I have to even ask, 
you know, what do you mean? But, you know, we have to do that as evangelicals too, right? When people call you that, you have to go, wait, I'm not that kind. I'm this kind, you know, what kind of a Christian are you? So I will say this, uh, there is no room. There is no room in Paul in the New Testament for um, despising your brothers or your sisters. There, there's no room for it. In fact, we're partners. We need each other. We image God together. We don't even have to know how we do that. We just know we need each other. And uh, we don't have to know what women bring or what men bring. We just need to know we're made in the image of God and we need each other. Church needs mothers and fathers. Um, you know, I, I think I told you, I didn't used to even think women should learn the languages, let alone teach at a seminary. And I had a pretty profound experience in some of my early years as a prof. I had a young soldier who was deploying and I was sitting at a, a coffee shop reading and I looked down and saw these military boots and looked up and here he was. And he said, I, I came specifically to tell you goodbye. I didn't have a mother figure who was godly. And I can't tell you how formative that has been for me as a ministry worker. Uh, and as we get more and more people who are coming from broken homes, broken Christian homes, they need to see us modeling healthy male-female relationships. Brothers and sisters can get on an elevator together and not be afraid of each other. We can love one another from the heart. Yes, you have safe boundaries, but not ridiculous boundaries. In the same way, I would treat my brother in Christ like I would treat my biological brother. And I would get on an elevator with him. Now, I know there are certain kinds of brokenness where you shouldn't do that. But as the norm, you ought to be able to do that and not think anything of it because we need, we can't, it is a learned response to learn to think of someone as a brother or a sister. And we need to be modeling what that looks like in our Sunday school classes. I would love to see us have men and women team teaching. I would love to see us doing that in our adult Bible fellowships simply because we need to see it modeled that it gives hope. There are, people have broken marriages, they have broken relationships, they have broken parenting. They need to see it as possible to have healthy relationships with each other. Well, Dr. Glan, thank you so much for joining us for this wide-ranging conversation about Artemis and, and implications of the Artemis cult for uh, First Timothy, but also just thinking about uh, the impact of uh, of your work on on church, uh, on, on the church as well. So I just really, really enjoyed this and thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. 